Less, I'm David Greer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up, Bitcoin backfires, but will it bounce back? Revolut gets into travel insurance, and we all get drunk in a pub. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. This week's show is slightly different. This is the first recorded Fintech Insider pub crawl. We're coming to you live from the Spit and Sawdust pub in Bermondsey. Pints in hand, let's get into it. So my name is David Breer. If you don't know that by now, then you're probably tuned into the Rob podcast, but most of the actual 11FS team are here now. So the rest of the team are here, yeah? Say hello. They have drinks, they're very happy. Yeah, everybody's got alcohol, everybody's happy. Um, But specifically, the rest of the co-hosts that are here, so Jason and Simon, how's it going, guys? Good. I'm waiting for my pie, though. I need to eat. You know that point in the pub crawl where you've had a couple of pints and now you need to eat? Oh, we've got a hangry Jason, people. Hangry Jason is not Let's hope nothing controversial comes up, because I'm going into it. I'm going to take it on. Bring it on. It's going to be an interesting one. So as soon as the, 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 uh, the pies and the mash turn up, like, could we have any more stereotypical London food arriving mid this thing? And, uh, and obviously Chris Skinner is with us as well. So hey, say, say hey, Chris. Always nice to be back with you guys. And resident awesomeness of everything awesome. Monty Munford. How's Hello. it going, Monty? I'm very happy to be here. Of all of us, I feel like you're the, the most at home in this environment. I love London. I love Suffolk. I love pubs. Although I would add it was quite a long walk for the previous pub. <laughs> it was, yeah. Would I be right, gents? It, it's cold out there today, I isn't it? I would go as far as to say it was a schlep. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was a schlep. The house in the state, that one, that was a bit interesting as for, well. For our international audiences, schlep is, you like, Google it. Uh, that's all I'm saying. So, so anyway, everybody has a drink in hand, so let's get started with this week's news. So first up, we have a, and, and I'll be honest with you, first up, probably every news story of every show we're going to do this year, it's going to be open banking, right? So there's been so many things that have come out from an open banking context perspective, but the amount of just explainer things, you know, like, and actually I, I kind of think the, the context of it kind of hitting many mainstream media pieces has been out there. So, you know, we've been seeing the things that have been coming through on the, the FT, on the Times, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this is one from, and actually was submitted to FinTech and Society news platform by Bud Jamie. Who could that possibly be? Um, and this is the story over on FT.com that shakeup for UK bank accounts comes into force. Uh, what do we think about this? Well, I mean, as you know, I've been talking about open banking for 10 years. So it's nice it's finally arrived. Um, I think what I found very disappointing is that most of the mainstream consumer media positioned it as a negative thing, saying that it was basically you'll get hacked, scammed, and you will lose your money if you sign up for open banking. Why would a regulator bring in a regulation to open up banks if it's going to get you hacked and scammed? It's ridiculous. Well, so we've got a bit of a journal and with a track record and who knows a bit about PR here. Why, why might those stories be appearing in the media, do you think? Is, 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 I wonder, is, is somebody briefing journals that this, this open banking might be a bad thing, perhaps? I think it's a bit of ignorance, really, the whole thing. I mean, to be honest, um, as someone that's supposed to know about this stuff, I mean, I didn't really know what open banking was until about a week ago and what it meant, you know, I was thinking that the only thing coming on was GDPR and that was a big deal and that was what everyone had to do. I suppose from a profile basis or a, a kind of visibility type thing, I'm not so sure that it is that negative, but I think it would be easier to make it negative because 
it, it would seem, you know, you, you guys were from FinTech, you know, when it's like being disruptors, it's quite an easy thing to blame old banks doing old stuff, doing it badly. Maybe that's just the kind of... Well, the and, and part of this is the, the downside is obvious. The upside is absent at the moment. Because where's that killer, um, that killer proposition, the thing that says, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign up for that because that's going to make my life easier. All we've said is this stuff's going to come along. It's going to give you access to your bank account or you are going to provide a third-party access to your bank account. And we can see all the ways in this, which this can fail but you're not seeing how it works. In a way, I don't think they want people to know, in, in, a, in a way. You know what I mean? Because it's clearly good for the individual bank holder or the guy that owns the deposit. I mean, I've actually seen very little ripples of what this means for, for me or any of us around this table, or, or you know, Joe on the Clapham omnibus or, or whatever. I mean, I don't even know what it means. It, it, it seems to be they're just saying, well, OK, so it's happening, but yeah, it's not really clear what's happening. No, it's very, and, and very. I, and I think it's the it's the sort of um, pantomime trope of like you know banks being evil and trying to do something dodgy, but you know, trying is, to sell your data to make money off you, know, ah. like evil laugh. But um, and speaking of people who are probably trying to make the most of data, actually the the next sort of story in this series about open banking was actually in Business Insider. It was a really good article, I, I thought, um, submitted by Alex S. But this is it could be easier for Facebook and Google to get into UK banking. So so, you know, maybe this was the approach that the uh, journalistic sort of uh, stance was taking, which was, this is a positive, right? You know, people like Facebook, they like Google. This is a, surely this is the benefit being shown to people but as well? I think you've got two things happening here. On the one hand, you've got the public general consumers who are very frightened of access to their bank accounts or opening up their banks to anything. Um, I was quite surprised recently to see that the average British consumer, two-thirds don't use mobile banking, a third don't even, don't even use internet banking because they're frightened of the security of those systems. And then on the other hand, I think we're going to see a movement that no one's predicted yet, which is the unforeseeable outcomes of open banking, which is yeah, when Facebook, Amazon, Google, Tencent, Badoo, don't forget those guys, um, all start to leverage this capability, then you'll suddenly find a lot of things that are currently very difficult will become really easy, such as paying my mates through Messenger. I, I, I like what Jason said a moment ago about nobody selling the upside. You were listening? I, I, occasionally I listen to Jason. I even paraphrase him quite a lot. It, uh, it's, it's weird because it's usually in a bar as well, isn't it? To be honest yeah, so at least like we're consistent. When Jason said a thing, um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to build a career off paraphrasing Jason, but um, there's definitely something in that nobody's selling the benefits particularly well because they're hard to talk about. And, and you just nailed it there with, well, actually, if I can just pay my friends through my social apps that I already have, it's a well-known fact that people only really use four or five apps on their phone. So if I can move my banking service to where that experience is, to where that customer is, that's not me being threatened by the big technology company. That's me being enabled and to that's do funny, more business. I remember, I remember years ago asking people in banking conferences, do any of you use mobile payments? And no one put their hand up. I said, do any of you make in-app purchases on games or use iTunes? Everyone put their hands up. It's, that's mobile payments. Exactly. I think it's that, that whole thing of no one now uses the internet they use websites, they use Facebook, they use Twitter, they use everything else. So to a certain extent, the, the media and the press around this has been misplaced for me because actually if you'd have found a few of those early AISPs or the PISPs and isolated what you thought were really great propositions, then you should have just pushed them 
and then said, oh, and by the way, these are powered by this new thing. Yeah. But the story's not in the new thing. The story's in these new uh, properties do, that are out Do you think, though, that the, you know, that the, the government and the regulator, though, has done a good enough job to paint the positive for customers? You I'm know, angry, I, so I think everything's bad at the yeah, moment. Okay. <laughs> I want to flip this to Monty, because you've... How do you communicate a technology story? Has Jason got it right? Do you have to talk about, actually, let's just forget about the tech and talk about some of the examples of what it means for customers? Does it have to be grounded in reality for people? I would say that in the second or third week of January, after CES, there is a, like a silly summer opportunity here for like a 10 days of a, of a story. You know, you know what I mean? I mean? Clearly, we're going to talk about crypto after this and all that stuff. Um, in the form of communication I, I still think it's just ill you know whether it's from the banks or from the government or whether there's a conspiracy theory or whether it's good for the consumer or whether two-thirds of people don't use a banking app or or whether it's a story for us as kind of veterans or you know seasoned some of us more than others by the way um, whether this is a, whether this is a kind of demographic story right if you say two-thirds of people don't use mobile banking, we've discussed this at previous podcasts, that I'm a bit wary about doing it as well, you know, you know what I mean? But, but I, I just think it's really weird that in a, in, a, in a kind of like prairie of news that this hasn't been covered more. I mean, maybe there will be a kind of, effort, you know, there'll be an after effect. I wonder if there's been a lot of press, but not a lot of coverage. You know, it's not crossed over to, to the psyche. But what, you, but what you're saying is that you're saying it's negative press. I'm not necessarily saying so, it's so, negative press. I'm saying there's been a lot of articles, but I don't know if the articles have gotten to the point of the benefits. No, no, I think it's almost exclusively negative. So I think if you look at the, you know, the next story that actually came through on BBC News, actually, this was uh, uh, that nationwide delays open banking launch. Like, I think the, the trope that is out there of banks doing something negative type thing, I, I think this is such a, open banking is such a complex subject that actually the easiest way to convey it is just that banks Banks have been stupid and done a thing that is actually harming well, you. Well, well, it plays and, and, to that and, filter bubble, doesn't yeah. it? It plays to that, you know, when someone tells you something you already suspected anyway. Oh, so banks are slow. Ah, they're trying to get out of it. Oh, banks are going to steal my data. Banks aren't going to protect me. There's going to be a way of screwing me somewhere here. Then then that's easy news, isn't it? That kind of just plays to that fear. And, I, and I don't, I'm not sure it's all actually true. So the, the go live dates that people have been sort of putting forward uh, in this uh, BBC article. So it says, RBS will be live at the end of February. Not sure that's no, true. No, no, this was actually from the FCA website. Really? So uh, Alex went through, and there's actually a, and the open banking implementation piece, there are letters from the open banking implementation entity to each of the banks responding on their requests to actually delay their delivery. So RBS will be live at the end of February, Barclays in March, Nationwide in March, HSBC the end of April, Santander in May, Bank of Ireland, August and September. And they've, they've each made particular uh, applications to say why they're going to be late and what they've been doing and how they've gone about it. And then they've been given dispensations in various ways in order to deliver against them. There's also a sub-piece in here which is quite interesting in that um, I keep getting regular messages from Barclays about my uh, Barclays app saying you won't be able to access balances or uh, information this weekend because we're doing an implementation of something called ring fencing. And so there's lots going on within the bank's actual systems to change and separate and restructure. It was FCM this weekend as well, so um, there was a, a check imaging 
piece of work. Like this was the weekend of change in banking. Like for some reason, January is the time. So did we, you know, like did we actually expect? Because it feels like there's a like looking at that list that you went through there, Jason. Like nobody. Well, so it's only AIB, Danske Bank, and Lloyd's Banking Group that actually met the deadline. Like, is this a problem or is this acceptable? You if, know? If, if they meet the deadline, is that good or not? Well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if meeting the deadline is the measurement of good. Is it, can I tell a story that is positive about the benefits to you, the customer? This is why I've done this. You will now be able to, uh, so, so one that's used a lot and it's a bit of a trope, but it's easy to understand is the bill switching one, right? So I'm in my app. You can tell what utility supplier I use you can suggest to me from any of these bill switching websites here is something that you can use to switch but you're in your mobile phone you're looking at your transactions and it's like ah actually you could save 200 pounds a year if you just press this button you couldn't do that inside the app as easily before now you'll be able to do it quite easily that's not the only example it's an overused example but it helps make it make sense but what's interesting you've got a big split camp here which is the Banks, I think, are briefing the media to, to say it's threatening, say it's bad. Um, and I think the banks are struggling to actually re-architect both refencing and open banking and PSD2 and everything else. On the other hand, you've got all the fintech and challenger bank startups saying, this is fantastic, let's get access to it, let's give the benefits and the positives. You know, so Facebook, Google, but Starling and Atom and the other guys, Monzo in particular, all want this to come through. But they're challenged by the incumbents. But does it have to be bad for banks? I mean, David, you've been saying for a few years now, it looks all like stick. But is there carrot there for the banks? I think the interesting thing, and probably staying on this theme to a certain degree, is so, you know, Monzo released their API to co coincide this week with everything that happened in PSD2. And we had the stand-in Simon, Simon Evanskalina from, from Monzo, who uh, on the uh, FinTech Insider News on air show earlier on. And he was saying that actually, you know, despite the sort of perspective of the, you know, the dog at my homework and I didn't quite get everything in time, then, then this is the beginning of the journey. This isn't the end. This isn't the, the kind of adherence to the regulation. This is the, the start of API phase like 0.1. Um, and actually, if everybody in, in the CMA and everybody who is sort of supporting that and around that, not only the, the big banks, but the people who are looking to adhere to it as well, are actually seeing this as the beginning and at that the journey is going to take us further. Like I, Personally, I, I'm skeptical of that for the big banks because of having seen the approaches that they take to uh, significant regulation before then actually I, you know, I'm skeptical that they will do beyond the, what the regulation is actually saying. But uh, like Simon seems like a smart guy, so I, like, I'm, I'm open to uh, his perspective. Yeah, I mean, we talk about APIs essentially enabling end-to-end -end journeys. And for that, it needs multiple partners on a particular platform. And so while you know, January the 13th has just passed, and some of the banks are there, some of them aren't, some of the fintechs are going through the regulatory process, you know, the, the ecosystem there, the end-to-end -end journeys aren't there in order to provide the value at the moment. So to a certain extent, you might argue we're in that trough of dis disillusionment to refer to, uh, to Breer's Gartner background. You know, we've, we've had the hype, we've, we've hit the date, and now we're going to go through a period of 
yeah, but we're not really seeing anything. And where's this brilliant future that we expected? So it's that, but it's that period then where actually we'll start to see some nice propositions come through. We'll start to see some stuff develop, but it's not going to be in the next few weeks or arguably the next couple of months. So I think the challenger banks have been very good at growing their business and communicating with their customers. But what they haven't necessarily been good at is telling their story to the wider public. And maybe that's the next step and the next story arc they need to think about is, great, you've got the tech crowd in the urban centers, but how do you reach everybody else? And that's mainstream. I guess it would have been interesting if, you know, the challenger banks and the AISPs and the PISPs had got together and had, you know, a joint media strategy as to how to approach that. Because I, I don't know, I know we've got Innovate Finance, but I don't know of, of a, like a trade body for that next generation group that, that could argue... Uh, could argue Actually, of, that's what Innovate Finance should be. It should be the spokespeople for the in- industry of the challenges and the startups and the new community that's trying to break down the barriers. But unfortunately, Innovate Finance... Right now, it's it, it, you know it, it, since Lawrence left, I haven't quite worked out who's the voice. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a lobbyist into government, not necessarily the voice to the customer, isn't it? I think the you know the interesting thing on this is that I just don't think customers care. Like I don't, until somebody gives them a like something that looks like a service that might replace something that's slightly better than the thing that I'm doing, then I don't think really anybody's going to give a damn. And speaking of probably not giving a damn, like I can smell pies and mash, so I'm probably going to go and get one of those, and we'll be back with the news very shortly. Can I say one more thing before we close? Sure. I can't stop thinking about your phrase, pantomime trope. I think it's awesome. <laughs> You'll be seeing that on a social media thing very shortly. We'll be back very soon. Oh, no, you won't. <laughs> oh, dude, fucking awesome. <laughs> Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank, and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. If you want to keep up with some of the other things that we're doing out right now, I really recommend checking out Connection Interrupted, which is a weekly podcast brought to you by Sam Moore, looking at how technology changes the lives and unique personal journeys brought to you. Check it out on iTunes now. All of these shows are available to you on iTunes, so please leave us a review and subscribe via the 11 Media Network. Now on with the show. Awesome. Like literally I'm doing this now with pie and mash and mushy peas on my lap, which like feels like the most British thing I've possibly ever done. So at, if you're at listening all. in America, sorry, but it smells really good. It really does. Yeah. If we, if we could pass that on, we would, I'm sure somehow, but. But you've got to travel here. The technology is never really there, is it? Let's be honest with you. Could you explain mushy peas to an American audience? I don't think I can. I don't think I can do it justice, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll maybe send some pictures and you guys can check that out on social. Staying with the theme that we did before we broke up and thank you very much to the sponsors that we've got as well uh, in the, the nice little ad break there. Um, Monzo actually um, came onto the show recently. So Simon, you had the opportunity to catch up with Tom Blomfield, who seemed 
pretty damn confident that despite all of the opportunities offered by the tech giants when it comes to the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons, that actually he felt that a bank with a banking license would probably be the people who would offer that complete financial package. So if you head over to 11fs.com, you can catch the full interview that we did with Tom Blomfield, where he's talking about the thousand percent growth which is pretty damn impressive. So, so we get a lot of stick for being moms or fanboys because Jason's here. Um, and, and look, you, when you hear numbers like that, you can see why. I, I, I never had any relationship with Monzo before I came into this company. I have no reason to, to shill them in any way, shape or form. This interview was a great interview. I enjoyed it thoroughly as a human being, listening to somebody talking about a company that's grown and why they've grown. So I asked uh, Tom straight up, do you think that the tech companies are not just going to come and eat your lunch once open banking comes in? And his view was, no, it's down to our business model and our DNA. What are they great at? They're great at building a social user experience that brings people back to being social or to consuming content. What, did, what does Monzo see itself as being great at? Well, he said, we figured out viral growth. I think that was their first stage. They figured out viral growth, and yes, now they've got to switch from this prepaid card world into a new world, uh, where it's kind of moving from the uh, financial wild west of, you know, like open banking's coming, what's the world gonna look like? You've got this prepaid card into a future of you're gonna be a mature bank. Uh, you're gonna become this new sort of thing um, in the west, in the east. We've seen Alibaba and Tencent be your financial control center. We've seen Alibaba and Tencent be this uh, financial services operating system. And Tom saw Monzo as an opportunity to really grab that because the tech companies in the West, Facebook, Google, Amazon, haven't really grabbed that here. Uh, well, and, and Chris, you've spent quite a lot of time with Alipay and actually quite a lot of the senior executives, didn't you? Last year now, actually, this uh, time flies when you're having fun. Like, does this sort of resonate with you? Actually, as you know, I'm kind of stalking them, basically. Um, and to a large extent, we had this sort of uh, riff last year around, and Alibaba's now done this, and Alibaba's now done that. And every day, almost something was happening with Ant and Alipay and Alibaba. And the difference between Alibaba and um, Tencent and Badoo is that Alibaba's gone global first. And um, they've beaten Google and Amazon and Facebook t to the opportunity, basically, of becoming a global platform for transactions. And what will be interesting is, you know, the MoneyGram deal has fallen through with Ant Financial, which is because the Americans don't like the idea. But America's got, you know, a lot of good internet companies, but I don't think that the regulation in America has allowed them to fl flourish in the way that the Chinese have allowed these guys to flourish. And people say, oh, China, you know, the, the data's all being given to the government. Do we not think that PayPal and Facebook give the data to the American government? Of course they do. So what we're going to see, I think with Alibaba in particular and, and Financial, but also with Tencent and, and all the other guys around them, is a big, big move towards... Um, becoming global platforms, and they they're halfway there already. Yeah, but I guess on one hand, we're you know we get stories about how amazing Alipay is and everything moving forward, and the you know the real leaps that they're making in terms of millions and millions of customers. On the other hand, we're seeing China um, restricting and almost telling people. Oh, you know, we had the the stories about people on the train being warned that they're credit score was going to be affected by their behavior 
Like, like, is China really the place that we should be looking for, for characteristics that actually can be moved into the Western world? Or do we think it's just a very, very large Petri dish that actually we can't see really taking over in other areas? That's also something that stays in my head, which is that um, if you talked about Russian startups and companies or talked about Chinese startups and companies going global, there's an immediate distrust of them. And the reason is that we don't speak Russian or Chinese, we speak English. And that's where we love the American companies because they're English speaking or almost. And yet their behaviors are just the same as Russian and Chinese com companies. The only difference is the language. And that's, that's where the distrust comes from. To Who knew stuff. that now that that would be true? That is true, yeah. isn't it? You know, Russian's really difficult to learn. Chinese, probably a little bit easier. I do think David had a, an interesting gem in, in his question though as well because there's something interesting from a policy point of view about how the, the, uh, the, the one-party state in China is able to coalesce both policy and uh, the private sector in a way uh, that is harder in the rest of the world. So they can get telcos to play nicely with tech companies to play nicely with banks so that you can now get banks offering services up through financial services. And we were talking about open banking earlier. Banks have the opportunity to offer their products and services up through technology providers in a way where if you have one party state making you do it, it can actually be really transformational for both sides. We might argue in, a, in that kind of one party, you know, uh, dict dictatorial state, uh, you can enable uh, leapfrogs, big jumps, because the market is good at incremental change. You know, someone comes along, they beat someone else, they move along, but ultimately the business model has to work now. There's no, there's no PE equivalent for markets. You know, you can't suddenly take us where we are now and jump us a bit unless you have full control over it and say, look, it's obvious that this thing over here is going to work better. Therefore, we're going to move you all along. Or, you know, you look at Adahar in India or you look at WeChat in China. There's some just big things that happen because we're in control. We see this is the right thing to do. Therefore, we're and moving massive in that population direction. with massive scale. Yeah. yeah, but both with massive populations, more than a billion people. I lived in India for two years between 2008 and 2010. Uh, I am a Democrat. I love democracy. I love, well, I mean, it's had a kick in over the last couple of years, you know what I mean? But one of the things I did realize about India when it came to infrastructure when I lived there is that why has India got trammeled rubbish roads where food rots on the side of the road, something weird percentage, while China has super highways? The uncomfortable truth is, as you say, Jason, because of that kind of one party state, it does get things done a lot quicker than a, a government that changes every four years. And we know this in Western Europe especially, but in India, with 1.1 billion, 1.2 billion people, it kind of is better if you're... I guess it's an interesting parallel or, or um, I don't know, similarity with that Henry Ford quote about when things, when the pace of change outside of a company is faster than inside of the company, you're in trouble. You might argue the same at a countrywide level, that actually when the state, the pace of change of technology globally is moving faster than a, than a country can change both legally, regulatory and everything else, then you, is that country in trouble? And I would argue that the fact that it's a democratic country makes it slower. I, I think the, the we've got an all political. We have, yeah. like we, we've reached that peak of humanity 
It's about one and a half pints. I'm not going to lie to you. But, but I, think the, I think the really interesting point in this is that actually the similarity to the conversations that we've just been having about open banking. So yes, there's so much uh, amazing things happening in India through demonetization, which is a, a mandatory thing that happened through uh, you know, the regulatory bodies and the, the, the government and everything there. You know, we're seeing a wholesale collaboration between large technology firms, regulatory entities, and uh, governments in China fostering all of this innovation. Well, this is happening here. We just don't quite recognize it. You know, it has taken PSD2 to come along in Europe to actually get the banks to do the thing that they should have been doing for 10 years. Yeah, it's a point I keep coming back to because I think there's a huge oversight within European and American markets of what's happening in Asian, African and Latin American markets. I'm traveling nonstop, as you guys know, because that's not often that I'm here. Um, but in those travels, what I keep seeing is massive waves of fundamental innovation in thinking with technology in emerging and developing markets and markets that had nothing there before, like China. Whereas what I see in Europe and America is struggling to break out of legacy and not being able to do so because we're stuck with old ideas and old technologies and old infrastructure and old thinking. Well, it's good that you mentioned Africa and Jason's point about leapfrogging. The whole thing about Africa leapfrogging, and it's a very, very overused thing about M-Pesa in Kenya and all that stuff, the unbanked and the amount of GDP that goes for M-Pesa didn't necessarily kind of transcend the rest of Africa and all that type of thing. But I don't know what we're talking about here, we're talking about territories with different regulations and different ways while a revolution is going on and no one actually knows who's going to be the winner. We seem to have this kind of like zero-sum Silicon Valley bollocks, you know what I mean? That if you're not the winner, you know, I really hope that the Airbnb, Uber, Just Eat shit is over, you know what I mean? And it will be more niche and it will be more innovative. Because you got those winner-take-all platforms where the only answer was that the business model was you get this one winner-take-all social network, you get the one winner-take-all ad platform, you get the one winner-take-all search engine, you get the one winner-take-all, dare I say it as a Google fan, um, mobile platform with, with Apple. This is definitely something that has been the last 10 years and it's been rent-seeking, value-extracting from the economy and that's been the story of the West. And it's been a bit different in other markets and it's had to be it's had to be more decentralized and distributed across africa because there aren't the old infrastructures to layer on top of yeah it's it's a, it's going to be so interesting this is going to be you know with the, everything that's in the regulatory space the east versus west thing is just going to keep going so uh, but i i guess moving on to the next story uh, like we would be remiss not to talk about this one and i think it's probably the what could that be? the most interesting randomness of uh, you know speaking about the winner taking all here this is crypto bloodbath you know we are seeing an amazing amount of stories kind of uh, cropping up in this space about uh, the various different trials and tribulations of various different cryptocurrencies so uh, first up lit literally almost all of them that i even know is a thing so uh, first up we have a story in business insider so this is bitcoin crashes 25% to below $11,000 during cryptocurrency bloodbath this was a pretty impressive one but uh, simon I, I imagine there's nobody better here to uh, to shepherd us through this uh, tragedy but than yourself so uh, what happened and actually i think the the rationale for why is probably more interesting so 
The 25% crash says it all. God bless Oscar William Group for that headline. Crypto bloodbath. Great headline writing, sir. Really well done. So He's a good fellow, actually, Oscar. Yeah, he's a really good guy. Shout out to Oscar. So um, at its peak, the Bitcoin market hit $19,000, uh, and it's now trading somewhere around $10,000, $11,000. We covered this in depth on Blockchain Insider, but all of the 10 biggest cryptocurrencies crashed with double-digit losses. Uh, this is everything from your ripples to your ethereums to your litecoins uh, and the volatility is definitely set to continue and what, what was the what was like the rationale for this because you know uh, obviously we do not in any way give advice about when people should or shouldn't be in the, these types of things but well like what there must be some reason or is this just arbitrary fluctuations and a thing we don't really understand but um Monty and I were talking about this before the uh, before we started recording the podcast in another bar. Yeah, pretty much. But and, and it, it's interesting how traditionally, especially in financial markets, there's always this feeling that no one really knew what was going on. But journalists had to come up with some plausible answer, and there had to be a story around it. But that was retrofitted, and it's never been clearer than in cryptocurrencies that that's the case. No one has, I would argue, no one has the faintest idea of what made that made this happen. Although there's Business Insider lists uh, at least five theories that are doing the rounds. And I think Monty's going to add a sixth as to, uh, as to why this happened. So just before Monty jumps in on that, there's a couple of things that I think are interesting here. First, there was a lot of people, including the CEO of Swift, who talked about tulip mania. And there's, a, there's this fun graph going around that maps the Dutch tulip boom of the the 1640s to the Bitcoin boom almost perfectly. And I think doing that with history is always always a bit more uh, narrative and poetic license than it is really uh, data science. But there's a bit of that where we went up so parabolic, we went up such a massive amount that the market was being pumped. There were people that were able to buy a lot of Bitcoin to move the price, and then they came to a profit-taking phase where it's like, actually, now it's time to take profit. This is just simply what markets do. There was a very useful bit of news out of China recently. Reuters reported that there was a, somebody in the uh, People's Bank of China said, actually, not only are we going to push mining conglomerates out of China, all exchanges will, will be kind of more heavily regulated. We won't do OTC trading and cryptocurrency trading in China will effectively be killed. And South Korea, which is right now the biggest market by far, is looking to take similar steps. So in short, the fear in the market has been the regulator is coming, but the market has done a near 30% pullback. The track record has been gain, 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 30% pullback, gain, gain, gains, 30% pullback. So we might not be through the woods with the craziness yet. Okay, so tulip mania, Bitcoin mania. There are narratives here. There are great stories, right? The great story about tulip mania is a sailor, apocryphal or not, stayed in a stately house in Holland. There was a tulip there that was worth more than the Houses of Parliament or whatever were worth. And he ate the tulip thinking it was an onion. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, there's a great book about it, you know, it's in the book and all that stuff. The narrative with the Bitcoin thing is that Lily Allen did a concert, I think it was in Germany, four years ago, five years ago, they said, uh, we'll pay you a Bitcoin. She said no. If she'd taken it, she'd be worth $1.2 billion, right? <laughs> so you have these two great stories about mania and it's all fucked up, blah, 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 right? Everyone doesn't know 
about the financial markets. You get kids that check out 10 shares at the start of the year, financial journalist kids who does better than the financial journalist. You have Bitcoin people talking about this. You have fucking insanity about trying to work out what it is, right? It's gone up, it's gone up. The 2017 was a year of the fucking crypto bore that you're sitting watching him and he's going, look, basically like some miser counting his money every time it went green, right? About time those motherfuckers, right, stop checking their phones and all that stuff, right? So the, so what, the reasoning behind this thing, right, is all types of stuff. In my opinion, what's happened is, where does most of crypto trading take place, right? Takes place in Asia. What's going on at the moment, which is not on our Western culture, which isn't Christmas or the New Year, or God forgive me, Thanksgiving, it's the Lunar New Year. People are buying presents, right? People are cashing out, going to fiat. We saw a little kind of fall down before Christmas, you know. This is probably very clear that in the most heavily traded part of the world, there's a festival and people need money for festivals and they're taking money out for a festival. That begins it. The narrative, the false narrative, the ones that want it to fail, jump on it and boom, 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 boom. In the last six months, I have mates who are builders in my pub who were talking about Litecoin. You know there's a pro I love them. You know what I mean? You know that this is a little bit too critical mass and all that stuff. You probably have a spectacle, like Guy Debord wrote the Society at Spectacle. We're all for a spectacle. There's probably, there's probably the Lunar New Year that starts it. It goes down a little bit. Everyone jumps on the lemming ship down the road. And anyone knows a little bit about it knows that in two and a half days it'll be fine. And there's a futures <laughs> market so you can short sell. Absolutely. I, I think it's really, that's, so, it, that's so the point. It, it's really interesting that we're in London tonight and there's a taxi strike. Like I haven't correlated the two of the things. It's like the taxi, because the person I've been hearing most crypto advice from, apart from Simon, is, is actually all I of the- I have not given you any investment <laughs> advice, let's be very clear. Is all of the black cab taxis around around London. So given the, is that what they're striking today? Anyway, um, Chris- What about what, their Bitcoin? Exactly, yeah, they're worried about everything. So anyway, Chris, what do you think? That would be amazing if that was true. There's actually four key things here affecting the price. One is that, um, Every year, the Bitcoin price goes down in January, and it has done for the last four years because people get high on the Kool-Aid juice of Bitcoin in December, and then in January go, I'll take some of my money out, and everybody sells in early January, and then they buy again in late January. The second thing is that um, there are a lot of things happening, as Simon mentioned, in Asia, which affect the price, and because it's still a market that's actually quite a small market comparative to FX and other markets, the volatility is there. Um, but every time that China or South Korea says they're going to ban Bitcoin, um, they never do because they can't because there's no actual place to go to to ban Bitcoin with. The third thing is that uh, this week on the BBC One show, which is a general you know, entertainment show and the Jeremy Vine Radio 2 show, they were debating Bitcoin and had a big segment on Bitcoin. And what's actually happened is 2017 was the year of Bitcoin. It's got into the public mind and it, it may be a mania, but the fourth thing is it's a mania that still has a long way to go because we're going to transform the whole planet using distributed ledger technologies and cryptocurrencies. And I think... 
But for, for the next three years, I reckon Bitcoin will still keep going up and up big time. So I think the interesting thing here is less about the fact that the price has gone parabolic, it's what's happened to society as a result. It's the fact that there is a 21-year-old intern that works for 11FS who's really interested in investing and finance in their future because something became real for them, because they had their moment where they pay attention. Name, name, name check. Moment. Give them the name check. <laughs> Petrit. You're a star, sir. Um, and Sam Frampton. Um, shout out to both of those guys. They do amazing work. And everybody in the company, you're all amazing. But like that, to me, is much more important. That shift in, I pay attention to this thing. And Chris's point was a really, really good one, which is, like, let's pay attention to the shift here that's going to be longer term. Everyone's getting obsessed with the price. I think, actually, what we're going to see is... Ignore the price. Look, look at where it's going. A look at what it's going. We've talked about digitized financial services for a long time. Yeah, yeah. This is the beginning of truly digital financial services in the gaps between financial but, organizations. But investing in Bitcoin is not investing in a, in a company that's productive. It's not investing in produce. It's a crypto uh, commodity. Exactly. And that's why Warren Buffett says, like, don't go and put all your money in a, a big block of gold. Because ultimately, the only thing that determines that price is the psychology of the people around determining how much it is. Well, that's the thing. I think surely this becomes down to a debate around semantics. Because if it's called a currency, like I, th I think it was badly named. Well, that's the thing. Actually, if we get away from believing that this is a currency to something that is, as Simon, you will say about an asset class in terms of what we're doing, then actually. You know, do we care that we can't understand the predictability of it? It's only whether we can actually, people can make profit because, from it. Because ultimately, it's not connected to some real world value. It's ultimately connected to what we believe it's worth. Oh, well, a bit like property in collateralized debt, debt obligations. Well, I think, um, Monty, you yeah, said this. led to some great uh, results in, in life. I, 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 think, I think you said this earlier on, Monty. I think the biggest thing about all of this that is shocking is that there isn't a Black Mirror episode that is about <laughs> cryptocurrency, right? Like, you know, if anybody doesn't listen for our international uh, audiences, you should go and check out the Black Mirror series. It is a phenomenal prediction of actually I loved what could the happen. dating episode, by the way, in the new season. And I always make sure I cover my video camera now. <laughs> anyway, since then, yeah. so, so I have a different take on it, right? With Black Mirror, massive fan, been to cinemas in Brighton. Charlie Brooker being interviewed on stage. I'm a writer. Clearly, is a better writer. Blah blah blah. I'm a massive fan. You know, the start of this series. Awesome. Star Trek, Starfleet, just awesome storytelling, gripping, not knowing where it's going. Last night I was with uh, a female entrepreneur that I know, and she loves it as much as me, and she said, but this one's like got happy endings, isn't it? <laughs> and I went, well actually I've seen like four, nearly five. Yeah, it's a bit more benign. You know what I mean? It's like... You know that, you know the phrase "jump in the shark," right? So if you and I've tried to get my missus into it, she wasn't into it. She it's a bit horrible. So we've been watching the old ones, the Christmas episodes, and there is a lot of repetition here, right? When you watch it with a slightly more critical eye, you think actually this is an artist that has made great work based on dystopia, right? Any great artist, when they jump the shark or reach the end of it, right, they go and do different things. However, right, you think that you've run out of stories, but there are enough stories. So if you could imagine, and I put this in the notes and I'm being a bit of a wanker, 
If you can imagine that there's a Chinese Bitcoin miner working in an HEP plant when China bans Bitcoin mining, which is trying to do softly, the story of him being on a great big dam on the side making loads of money, it's a great story. So Black Mirror could quite easily continue to make great dystopian stories. I watched the last episode last night and there are two things, one thing in my life I wish I'd never fucking read in my life, right? And that's Juliet by the Marcus de Sade, right? And I remember reading it in a fucking cemetery in Stoke Newington. And as I read this distasteful awfulness, as I wanted to check every form of art, I realised in front of me there was a gravestone that said William Booth. And he was the founder of the Salvation Army. So I felt like really fucking dirty <laughs> that, 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 I, that I checked art to this degree. I watched the last episode of it last night, right? I thought it was really unpleasant and really nasty and really unnecessary. You know what I mean? So what I think we should do now, hashtag artist changes track, white mirror. Let's have white mirror with stories of technology that are not dystopian, they're close, close enough to our lives to go, yeah, it could happen, and make it a little bit more optimistic about that type of thing. But, but and sorry to ramble, but maybe we could do this with crypto. Instead of it being the Chinese guy, it's like, okay, the guy that, the developer that made some money out of Bitcoin or new currencies, what did that person do with that money? Right, it was a kind of like loser, it was kind of open banking, banking fintech, right? Suddenly this guy has done this money and he's done this with that crypto game. But, but I'd argue that actually the standard trope, the standard stories from Silicon Valley are, are white mirrors. Actually, the, the thing that was interesting for me about Black Mirror was it was contrarian to the standard, uh, the standard stories that you hear from, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook or whatever about the, the Silicon Valley elite saying we're going to change and improve the world. And here was this, this series of stories that were very different because actually they portrayed the other path, which I would argue we haven't seen enough of. So I, I think, but as you said, it was. Yes. I think it's done. And, and I think in crypto, the narrative has been, but this is all about drugs. This is all, this is all uh, bad people. Uh, then surely then we could turn that around and the crypto story could become the Web 3.0 story. It could be. If we were saying the problem is the centralized winner-take-all platforms, if we're saying there's no privacy in this new age, the optimistic story behind crypto isn't everybody's going to be this miser crypto investor. The optimistic story is here is a way you can share in the growth of these platforms. But, but, I, but I think that that story or the positivity is going the wrong way. It's going to the, um, the extremist uh, privacy is the, uh, you know, is the best thing. Let's get rid of governments and central control. It's not about let's improve end people's lives. Let's improve the people in this pub and what's going on. It's actually let's, let's get her out of the, from under the foot of the man. You I, know? I, I agree with that totally. Crypto needs to grow up. Crypto needs to become mainstream. Crypto needs to serve people's real needs, not the needs of the people on the fringe. Completely yeah. agree. You, you mean you mean it's not about buying Lamborghinis and uh, Lambos, baby. moon Lambos? That's that's where it's at. <laughs> I got a press release this week, right? It was not anonymous. It was from this guy called Oscar or whatever, and he said, "Look, I read your stuff. Um, uh, I accept payment in Ether." 
for exotic vehicles with his Twitter moniker. And I checked his Twitter moniker, it doesn't exist, so suspicious. So I said, oh, interesting, dude, uh, what is exotic vehicles? And he said, well, actually, I accept Ether to pay for Lamborghinis, Ferraris, private jets and yachts. And I said, okay, that's not my impression of what, but let's, I'm talking to him next week. <laughs> also, the, the big problem in the ETH community and the Bitcoin community, community. is that you struggle to be legitimate. You need those people who can help you convert that into assets because banks won't accept your money. And there is the Nouveau Crypto Reach who are struggling with banks in Switzerland or somewhere else to be legitimate, to declare their taxable income. And surely you bring them into the light rather than push them out to the edge. Absolutely. And that is the thing that's, sorry, Chris, uh, that's what's going to bite people in the arse, right? Yeah. I, I have a little bit, you know what I mean? But I want to pay tax on it. I'm happy to pay tax on it. I spoke to my accountant on Friday. I said, you've got a great startup, amazing currency, Darren Fell, uh, Crunch, who's been looking after my business for four years, online accountancy, amazing. I said, so what are you doing with crypto? Because I know the conversations I've had after the last time was everyone's doing this and no one knows what it is, but it is part of the blockchain. So when the regulator finally catches up and the tax man catches up, whether it's capital gains, yeah. There are people that are getting paid in Ether and Bitcoin. Is that capital gains because they were given this money? There's loads of stuff. And we haven't covered my favorite headline of the week, which you know that cryptocurrency and Bitcoin has gone mainstream when the world's largest legal brothel bunny ranch accepts bitcoins for payments after you've deposited your assets. Wow. That is amazing. And the, if the oldest trade can possibly take cryptocurrency, then who can't? So on that note, let's grab another drink and we'll be back after this messages from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is sponsored by Huel, the nutritional powder food people. Jason and I absolutely love Huel. Often when we're super busy or literally have no time to eat, we still want to be healthy though. And Huel is really, really good for this. After the festive period of overindulgence aplenty, Huel gives me a quick, affordable alternative to grabbing yet another boring sandwich or worse, skipping a meal entirely. It only takes about 30 seconds to make. Just throw a few scoops of the Huel powder into water and you've got a tasty, nutritious meal on the go, which has all of the essential vitamins and minerals I need to keep my energy levels high and stay on top of my game. There are so many different flavors and combinations to try, including a brand new one that they've sent us this week, the world's first nutritionally complete granola. Huel are completely transparent about the nutritional information of their products, so if you want to learn more, check out their website. Even better, to get your New Year's resolution going with a bang, we've got an exclusive £10 discount code just for you, our Fintech Insider listeners. Head over to my.huel, that's H-U-E-L dot com forward slash Fintech, enter your email and get a £10 discount code today. Huel have never done this one anybody before, so get in there quick and get this before it's gone. Welcome back, and as a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS, the venture builders for a digital age. We help organizations understand the future and execute importantly on that. We're building propositions from, for clients from big and small organizations, so if you want to reach out to us, you can find us at hello at 11FS.com. 
Getting on with the next part of the show. First up, we have a story from the next web. This is Revolut's new travel insurance service. So this was submitted by Sharon O'Dea on FinTech Insider News. And actually is a really interesting one, if I'm honest with you. This is Revolut is doing automatic travel insurance based on your iPhone's location. This is pretty amazing, right? What do you guys think? Travel insurance based on your location, I think is a great idea. Generally, people don't use your context. People don't use, ah, I'm in another country. I can see that in your phone. It's usually, I have to tell my insurer. They, they, they want me to go and tell them everything when all of this information's right there to be found. So if Revolut are the ones doing it, partnering with insurers, I guess because they're involved in travel, that makes a lot of sense. Well, well I know in, you know in banks, I was talking about this like at a bank a long time ago, like the idea of proximity services and using things like iBeacons in airports to actually use BLE to know where people's phones are and then give them at least the prompts to say, given that you're moving abroad, you wanted to tell us to ensure that actually we're not blocking your card, but also activating things like travel insurance. So for me, this is like, finally somebody's doing it. Um, the idea with this from Revolut's perspective is new geolocation-based travel insurance product called Pay Per Day will basically activate when you enter into a country. You know, so very similar to what we see with uh, a lot of the challenger banks basically knowing the minute that I turn off airplane mode when I get to Turkey or wherever I am, being able to give me the, the instantaneous information about exchange rates, etc. then just making sure that actually I feel covered wherever I am. And you know, as somebody who uses random areas of like tra traveling from Norwich via Amsterdam to somewhere to somewhere I actually want to get to, knowing that I'm covered in all of those little hops where I'm going, not only the, the origin and the destination, is a really smart thing to do. Yeah, I think when I first started reading about this, I thought, wow, this could be abused beyond belief because if I suddenly drop an expensive SLR camera and then, oh, maybe I'll just turn on my insurance. Oh, there's maybe I'll get paid for that now. But actually, the, the clever thing is that it only covers medical and dental, not delays, cancellation or theft, which actually means to defraud this, I'm going to have to hurt myself physically, which to me sounds like a, a pretty good deterrent for that kind of behaviour. That sounds like a Black Mirror episode. It does. What I like about Revolut, about their platform mobile trading and all that stuff they're diversifying really early into this this is something that doesn't happen for about a year and a half when it comes to a company that's got an idea which is very, i like them actually i like the simplicity of it all but for them to be so proactive to move into this type of stuff so early uh, makes me think that they're a very interesting company to watch. But I also think a bit like Trov, which is pay-as-you-go insurances, that what we're seeing is a move towards pay-as-you-go services that cover you, which is far more clever because the old model of an annualized insurance is kind of really stupid when you don't need an annual insurance. What you need is, I, I'm about to take a risk, cover me now. You know? And that on-demand tap, I think it's good. we're going to see it more and more everywhere. I, I gen genuinely believe that insurance and insurtech generally is just getting bigger and bigger, quite frankly. It feels like the, and it's whether it's going to be, you know, the, the bank assurance play has been a really interesting one in terms of using uh, communities of bankers who have got more day-to-day -day frequent engagement with customers to, to actually promote and service annualized uh, more policy-based product services 
Um, but, I, but I think this is really interesting from Reveille. I guess I should be remiss if I don't promote the other podcasts in our, in, in our network here at this point. So if InsureTech is something that you're particularly interested in, then go to iTunes, search for InsureTech Insider and subscribe right now. I, I guess moving on from the UK European innovation that we're seeing in the banking space out to down under. So this is Zinja, and that's probably the only time I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Jason, correct me where I'm going wrong on this one. But Zinja's fundraising. So the first of a kind for banking aimed for the first fully digital banking in Australia. So I, I think this is amazing. So they've managed to raise 500,000 uh, Australian dollars in less than a day, which is pretty damn impressive. You know, I think if nothing else, what we're seeing here is a, a real um, move in the Australian market to emulate a lot of the things that's happening in Europe. And we're, you know, we're not just seeing this in Australia, we're seeing this in Africa, we're seeing this in America, we're seeing all over the globe. But uh, Jason, you're probably a lot closer to this one than we are. Yeah, I mean, I, I know Zinja well. I'm a non-executive director, so I'm, I've been involved with this. I guess when we did our last trip to Australia to work with some of the incumbents there, the idea was that actually Australia is about two or so, two or three years behind the UK, generally in financial services. Because there's a massive talent shortage in Australia when it comes to digital mobile. So it's interesting that they're actually doing it in spite of this gap. Yeah. So, so from their perspective, okay, two or three years behind. And if you actually look back, when Starling, Monzo, Revolut, all of those players started to get going, it really was two or three years ago. And actually the regulators now looking out and saying, you've got a similar market, you've got four or five big incumbents that really have the majority of the population you know, covered. Uh, they didn't really have the financial uh, crash of 2008, so there wasn't that to deal with. And actually, Zinger is one of the first, I guess, of that new wave of players taking a, a cue from what's happening in Europe in order to, to have a go at the Australian market. But doesn't it seem, you know, the Australian market seems to be progressing just rapidly. You know, I appreciate once the seal is broken, people generally can move a little bit quicker. But, you know, we, we've gone from... Uh, Australian banks being able to collectively get together and stop Apple Pay coming into effect to now Zinger is able to launch and raise half a million uh, actually raised a million as of today so uh, so that also shows I think the uh, like in the UK with Monzo the appetite for the for the end consumer to actually to get involved which is great from them for them on customer acquisition perspective but also from a people see that there is something that's needed there and are willing to put their hard-earned cash behind it. So we spoke to the CEO on episode 164. So if you go back to iTunes and listen on episode 164, you can actually hear from them telling their story uh, with Eric, the CEO. And, and I think uh, there's another thing to mention in the Australian market. They've just had released their new faster payment scheme. So Australia now has a, an extremely modern payment system. I, the payments nerd within me, and of course my significant other, Haley, if you're listening, um, then Aww. shout out Aww. to Haley. Uh, was a big, big fan. Valentine's Day's not for another three weeks, mate. Uh, <laughs> Early yeah. present, right? That's the present right there. Um, then there's a hell of a payment system there, and she was the one that pointed this out to me. It is really interesting how the Australian market may have a talent shortage, but has a heck of an opportunity, and that's exciting. It, it is, and uh, you know, we, we know they are moving you know, ahead pretty quickly. We've seen Zinja, like Simon, I think I woke you up at six o'clock this morning talking to a CEO of a bank in Australia, so apologies for that one. Like The, the trial continues, doesn't it? Yeah, you had to wake up early to talk to a CEO, and now you're sitting in a pub 
job. Your life's so hard. You have to realise that Australia is two or three years behind the UK market because that's how long a ship takes to get the news there. You know? like, it's, it's a long journey. It takes a long time to lose at cricket. If you're, if you're listening, Australia, we love you. Really. Ashes to ashes. <laughs> and finally, we probably better wrap this up because I think we're, well, we're approaching the end of our drink and we're probably approaching the end of the limit of what we can probably drink as well. So the and finally this week is quite an interesting one. So bizarrely, this is on CNN, uh, submitted to Fintech and News by, I believe, our very own Laura. So this is U2 frontman Bono directs investment fund into Fintech. Is that from his tax savings? Uh, maybe. You never know. I and mean, I imagine this is going to be one that continues to evolve, doesn't it? But uh, Simon, what do we think about this? So I just recorded investments platform roundtable, and we did it with a chap from a company called Callistone. Many of you have never heard of Callistone, but the guy from Callistone, John, he, he mentioned that he was on stage two years ago, and he said that um, U2 and Bono will launch a fund long before, and long before blockchain is a thing in financial services. And he was pulling that out of his backside. He had no inside knowledge. And lo and behold, he's one of £10 bet. Um, so well done for beating blockchain to the market, Bono. So his investment startup, The Rise Fund, is driving into fintech, um, was made an investment in the segment going into robo-advisor. So some of you may have heard of Acorns. Um, they're in the savings and investments app tailored to people with small amounts of disposable income. Um, the Rice Fund itself may be a startup, but it's, um, uh, it's actually got the backing of a private equity shop, TPG Growth, which oversees more than $8 billion. So Bono may be the front, front man, but behind him there's some heavyweights, as always. Um, and with Bono's help, they've raised $2 billion so far to invest in projects that are designed to have a positive impact in society. So, you know, uh, he's, he's trying to save the world and he's figured out money might be a way to do it. Um, but, you know, the, the great thing about Bono is uh, if he ever needs to go live anywhere in the world to spread his message, he could go live via satellite orbiting his own ego. So <laughs> he's, he's got it figured out. He has to call that fun the edge, right? Uh, well, he's got to call it... <laughs> Or is it going to be elevation or vertigo? Like, I still I haven't found what I've. I still haven't found the fun that I'm looking for. <laughs> I think on that note, we probably should leave this. Yeah, before the the U2 puns get into real full effect here, we should wrap it up. So on that note, this wraps up a very special pub crawl episode of the new show from 11FS. Thank you very much to our guests, and maybe if we start with a little bit of where can everybody find you? So. Monty, where can everybody find you? Uh, I, have a, I have a blog called uh, Mob76 Outlook, M-O-B uh, numeral 76 Outlook. Uh, that was my graffiti moniker when I was a kid. <laughs> 1976, 15 years old. Monty of Brentford. Three points off the playoff. Uh, just a silly little blog. Nice. Stat- Statue of Limitations, if anybody finds one of those, uh, that graffiti anywhere with um, the, that on it, then uh, if it was still there, I would be so happy if it was still there. <laughs> and Chris, where can everybody find you? Uh, in the pub. <laughs> or, or, or at thefinancer.com. Thefinancer.com and, and probably at any good bookstores very shortly, Chris, as well. So you've got a new book coming out. Yep, lots of uh, activity around the new book, Digital Human, which uh, has uh, official launch date on March the 19th in London and April the 12th in New York. Fantastic. Jason, where can anybody find you? Heading to the uh, train station very shortly. Very shortly. And on Twitter, at Jason Bates. And Simon, where can everybody find you? At S.Y. Taylor on Twitter and Blockchain Insider on iTunes. Check us out. Thank you very much. 
And as for me, you can find me on at David Rear on Twitter, and you can drop me a line as always on david at 11fs.com. Come talk to us on at Fintech Insiders on Twitter, or you can post a question to us on podcast at 11fs.com if you want to get involved. As always, if you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and please leave us a review on iTunes. We love those reviews. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. I think I've done this shit four times, right? I've loved it every fucking single time. This, this was the best one.